Hi everybody, and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us, and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. You have to invest in the people. Uh, getting to know them, getting to understand them, and listening to uh, massively into listening to them. Listen to what they've got to say to you. And try and draw stuff out by just offering a little question without steering them down little paths. Let them steer themselves down paths. And I think investing in your people, whether they be soldiers, whether they be football players, will have a massive effect on how successful the team, or whether that be a military team or a football team, how effective it can be. Today's guest had a story that some of our listeners may be able to relate to. He grew up on a tough council estate in Nottingham and left school at 16 without any idea of what he was going to do. On today's episode of the Golders Podcast, we're excited to welcome Sean Birchnall. Sean was the British Army's senior football team head coach a sergeant major in the British Army. Sean has now served in the British military for 31 years, developing leadership skills throughout his various roles in the military and as a football coach, inspiring people across many fields. Good afternoon, Sean. Hi, Keith. How are you? You okay? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you ever so much for creating the time and the space to be with us this afternoon. Now, so to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to you, Sean? Um, I think the way I've looked at the Goldust, I split it into two. I think there's the element of what I collect throughout my, whether that's a military career or whether that's um, through my football coaching career, and it's then using all the elements, and some of those elements are good and bad, and it's taking those particles of gold dust to then impart onto soldiers or football players um, to hopefully get them to achieve something that they didn't think they could do or they thought was out of their reach at the time. Um, so in summary, it's getting them to achieve an aim that they didn't think they were capable of doing. Now, you mentioned the Army, and for those that are less familiar with who you are currently, uh, but share with us an overview of your life in the Army. Um, well, initially, I'm from Nottingham. I was um, brought up in, shall we say, a robust council estate called Aspley in Nottingham, um, where you learn to grow up relatively quickly. Um, there was four kids, four of us, and um, it was, a, say, a working class um, a state to grow up in where football was the centre of attention. Everybody played football, whether it was on the street. And to be honest, we had a park that was literally on the edge of the estate. So um, a lot of football was played on the estate. Um, I had the dream of be, wanting to be a football player um, and like every young kid. Uh, but unfortunately, me, my pace couldn't catch my aspirations and um, I didn't get that opportunity to um, uh, be a football player. Um, I didn't really enjoy school, if I'm brutally honest, and uh, my choices when I left school were quite limited. 
Um, I think my issue with school is I couldn't deal with authority. You know, and it sounds a little bit strange now that I then sat in front of a careers officer and I said I'm going to join the army, and he burst out laughing, Keith. And it it was one of those situations that at the time you don't realise, but as you get a little bit older, it's that situation when he laughed that probably drove me to continue when I was first joined the army because the first say six to eight weeks of shock and awe of what am I doing here with people screaming and shouting at me and literally getting two minutes a day to myself, I kept thinking back to him laughing and it's what drove me to stay in the army. And here I am 31 years later and I've, um, I've been fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to develop through various ranks as a soldier. Um, I reached the pinnacle of a soldier's career as a regimental assault major, and then I was um, commissioned as an officer into the rank of captain, uh, currently a major, and I'm about to leave the army in the next couple of months, having done a full career plus. Um, and I've enjoyed every bit of it. Um, I think what the army give you in skills, whether that's leadership skills and life skills, um, I've transferred a lot of those into the football or sporting arena. Um, and I think it's taking little traits from different situations and I mean we'll develop these as we go on but there are certain situations as you grow in the army that you can they, they transfer so um, it's like a seamless process from the um, working environment into the sporting arena and I think um, again we'll explore that. Um, sporting opportunities within the army um, I, I was lucky enough to play various levels in the army and then I went down the role of coaching I think I did my first course in about 1998 um, and in that time since I've been lucky enough to manage or coach teams that have won various league titles within service football cups into services competitions at under 23 level and at senior men's level um, and I've also taken that and gone into civilian football and I've coached at step five step six and step four for those that understand the pyramid system uh, and I'm currently working at Winchester City, um, which is at step four at the moment, uh, with a lad um, which I get on really well with. And we see football pretty much the same way. Uh, and um, the development from what I've learned in the army, taking it into civilian world and vice versa, is key, I think. Sean, at one point in, in your career, you looked after around 500 army personnel. What are the similarities between overseeing so many people and then looking after a squad of players? Um, I think, David, that whether it's one person or it's 500 people, you've got to use skills to manage and lead them. Um, I think as if you're working with a squad of 25 to 30 players, it's slightly easier to get to know and understand your people because there's less of them for obvious reasons. Once you've got 500, um, you've got to work extremely hard to get to know them. You've got to understand what makes them tick, what drives them to. Bear in mind that every soldier that comes to work is a volunteer. They volunteer to join the army. And you have to understand what makes them turn up every day, what makes them conform to the way that we do our business and how, they, how we operate. Um, and it's, it's not that I have to learn every single detail about each and every person when there's 500 of them. I've just got to get a little snippet. And some of that snippet, David, can be just their name. And it's amazing when you've got so many people and a senior officer or a senior appointment remembers you, remembers your name. Now, you remember some people for bad reasons because 
they're the ones that don't conform, don't toe the line, they're the ones that are in the discipline book. Um, but the majority of people um, tend to um, be feel quite valued when you remember who they are. And I think there's, um, there's challenges to managing people um, in a working environment as well in a sporting environment because some people, uh, take a changing room, for example. Some people want to be told there's no grey area between us. This is what you're doing. This is what you're doing right. This is what you're doing wrong. That's somehow you get the best out of some people. Some people, if you went at them and was quite autocratic in the way that you spoke to them, they'd go the opposite way and they'd go into a shell and it would affect their performance and their outputs. So it's getting to know what makes people tick. I mean, I was quite surprised when I started to coach at football and started to take more responsibility was when you see certain players that are um, the characters in the changing rooms, one of the key players in the team, always the life and soul in and around the changing rooms, in and around the warm-ups, were the ones that actually needed a an arm around the shoulder away from the group, give them some reassurances about how they played and how, they, how they're developing them. It was quite an eye opener, you know, you know, because you think that the quiet one sat in the corner is the one that's he's the one that you need to focus on. And sometimes it's not. That's just his way of preparing and his way of managing certain situations. And I spent a lot of time learning that at football. And that's what you then go back into the military environment when you've got suddenly 500 people, the loud, brash one that wants to be and sure so everyone can see him. It's the ones layers back that you've then got to focus on at time. It's interesting, Sean, you shared that knowledge uh, and experience, of course, because of you know, why, why would you think that would be the case, though? You get the ones that are quiet. They might be quiet in the working environment or vice versa. And then you get them in a changing room and then something else happens or you get them on a football field and your experiences or in your opinion, why do you think that might be the case? I think some of it is down to confidence. Um, I think some people mask up their own confidence by being quite brash and quite bold when quietly in the background, they're quite apprehensive about how they're playing and how they're perceived by other players and the coaching staff. And unless you give those assurances to... Uh, and again, you can sit and... If, if you walk into a changing rooms and... I'm very reluctant to single out a, a, an individual player and say absolutely exceptional, outstanding. I, as a group, we can make those comments to, to affect everybody. But then you start to pick up as individuals away from the main group to try and give them the assurances that they need. Um, I think one of my key things is that it, it, the support staff that you select, when you're in your working environment, you can't pick the people you work for or work with because they're in the army, they're selected by promotion into various positions and, it, and it's that's who you work with and you've got to adapt the group to accommodate their styles and the way they are. When you go into a, a football environment, I, I was quite blessed when I was with the logistic core, core football side and then the army senior team in that I made a real focus that the staff in the support roles were just as important as the players. Um, I got um, with the Army side, I brought in Keith Emerson, who's one of the most capped players in the Army's history. Um, I brought, uh, who was an ex-pro, uh, I brought him in because he was my link then between the players and the coaching staff straight away. So I had that link instantly. Um, we 
With the army side, you're allowed um, to involve re army reserves, so that the old TA, the reservist units. Um, and we had a lad, Scott Ralph, who was, um, he's an A-licensed coach. Um, he works at St. George's Park for the Football Association. He coaches full-time with Walsall as well. Uh, with their under 18. So you've suddenly got knowledge of somebody that's current in the game. I've got a link between players. I then obviously then fill in with head of medical all the way down to people will laugh at this, but the most important man in a football coaching setup, the, the kit man. Kit man knows everything, absolutely everything. He's, he's respected by everybody because they all want something off him. But he was so key to the camaraderie and the changing rooms and the way that he held the, the change room. He could, I could be talking in the change rooms and they'd walk in, they'd listen to him. It sometimes got to that stage and I say to him, stop coming in here when I'm in here because, but he, he was so important and he, and he used to come to me with, players would confine in him sometimes and then he'd come to me and tell me. So he was critical to it. But it just adds to the, getting everybody in those support roles, complement the playing the player's ability but it's important to get those people that are doing it not for selfish reasons they're doing it because they want to be part of something that's successful they are committed to the team and to me and also they're honest in everything they do and that was that was always a key element and when you take those traits you take those back to the armor you put those traits into the team that you can't pick and that was how I made that always successful in a, from a managerial point of view on a day-to-day nine-to-five business. So. Well, as as head soccer coach for the army, having that high emotional intelligence of knowing what you can't. So you're working in the army. You're, you've got over 500 personnel working in and around you, and you can't select them. And then going into an environment where you could be more selective. Uh, what typical challenges would you face in selecting players to represent the army? Yeah, if I can start by just giving an overview, just so, so people understand the levels of representative football. You've got the core representative teams, which are like the Royal Logistic Corps, the Royal Engineers, the Infantry. So whichever cap badge that the individual has joined when they join the army. Um, and then from those core representative teams, the best players are then selected for the army. Um, they are, the, the army rep teams are the army men's senior team, under 23s, and then you've got the equivalent with the females. Um, it, the only way I can make uh, people understand is it's club football and international football. So at club football, you play for your core. International football, you're playing for the army. And it's it's the similar process. You only get them at a certain amount of time. Um, we have to have a squad of about 25 to 30 players because we have never, ever had a meet where we've had 25 to 30 players turn up for a camp, ever. Um, and that does come down to, like you say, people are on courses, overseas deployments, UK deployments. Um, there are sometimes um, issues at work that they won't release them for various things. So it's I've always kept in the back of my mind that treat that like people are injured or suspended. So you've got to just anticipate that certain people aren't going to be here. And the way that we did that was ensured that we, every coaching session, we had to involve everybody. We never focused on 11 or 16. We had to focus on the whole group so that everybody understand their roles and responsibilities and how we did set pieces, our structure, our, our way of playing, in and out of possession, all these things. 
everybody had to be involved. I've been at some clubs where they focus on the starting 11 and the rest just run around and it can be quite frustrating for them because they know they're not going to play. So it was that the squads were always mixed. I needed to see people in different environments under different pressures um, because I knew one day I'd turn up to a game and certain players would not be there. Um, an example of that, when I took over the army, we've got a, nine, a, a number nine sent forwards, um, talisman for the army side when I took over, superb player. Um, a month before my first into services, we had spent six, seven months preparing that everything was about opening channels to get the ball to him as quickly as possible. Um, we would then have obviously willing runners to go left and right. But basic stuff about how you're going to play. Uh, and a month before he was deployed to uh, East Africa and he wasn't coming back for the interservice. So we had a very, very quick turnaround, but we had a like-for-like replacement that could then sit in and he started and we did the job and won the game 3-0. So it's just having that fallback plan in place because you just, you never know who's going to turn up on the day. It really is um, because the commitments of the army are so wide. I mean, Take the last 18 months, for example, we've had troops deployed all over this country because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, I know we haven't been playing any sport, but that's just an example that we're not just tied to deployments overseas. We can deploy to all over the country. So, For someone to play and represent the army, what motivating factors are there? Um, I think the honour of being, once you're in the army and you're a football player, you're, you, you strive. Like I've, I, Once I started coaching, I wanted to be the head coach of the army. And that's exactly the same with the players. The players want to have that honour of representing that prestige of having that army tracksuit when they go back to their units and telling people in their units that I represent the army. It's quite a high, it's quite held in high regard within their chain of command who write reports on them on an annual basis, etc. Um, that they are doing more outside of the organisation to represent the army. It's quite, it's quite, it's quite a good honour for them. Um, some of them, it will be the highest level of football they play at or have ever played at. Um, my, as an example of that, my first game was against the German Armed Forces at Nottingham Forest. Now, as a lifelong Nottingham Forest fan, I've been watched as a young kid, Brian Clough stood in the dugout. To be then take the army team to the city ground and stand in that same dugout was such an honour for me. But you can imagine the players underneath the lights at a championship football club 10,000 people inside the stadium was an absolutely amazing experience for everybody. And the build-up to the week, Nottingham Forest had let us train in their academy on their facilities with Gary Brazil. And it, it, it was just, it was the closest they would have come to actually being a professional footballer and being played, paid for it. Um, and I think that is also a massive incentive for them to turn up in the middle of November when we're playing on a pitch on Queen's Avenue somewhere where it's not as um, attractive for them to come. So it's having those incentives later on down the line that keep them involved. Um, some of the teams we play, uh, we took a team a few years ago down to play Bournemouth under 18s, stroke 23s. Um, Joey Roach, who's the academy manager down there, um, kindly offered us a game down there. What that does for the younger members of the squad is give them opportunities to showcase their ability. Um, not saying that Bournemouth are looking for somebody to go and do a job there, but you never know whether or not, if you're 18, 19, that you perform against their 18s to 23s, that there might be an opportunity that comes up because you never know when opportunities are going to come up. Um, and also, I think 
um, David, is that they, some of them, it's a continuation of their uh, careers because we have certain players that have come out of cad- academy football and then decided that they've been released and they've taken the opportunity of joining the army because it's similar to an academy and the discipline and the physical elements of it. Is that we've had players, uh, as I said, uh, Rob Falkins was a skipper for the for, the, for my time in the, for the army team, who he, he actually joined the army, got then was offered a contract at Cheltenham Town, so got out of the army, and then after a couple of years got back in. Um, and uh, Keith, you're obviously aware, of Matt Glass, who was um, an apprentice at Nottingham Forest um, when you was there. So we we we've got players with pedigree, um, and these players are. Um, wanting to play, continue to play, but also have a career and play at the highest level they can. So I think that is main attraction for these players when they want to play and represent the army. So when players are representing the army, you also have got the inter-services, whereby the rivalry between the RAF and the Navy is, I'm sure, quite an interesting experience. But what is that rivalry like, uh, and how does it how does it represent itself from from your perspective? Um, the rivalry is intense, Keith. I think that's a polite way of putting it. It's extremely intense, extremely competitive, as you could imagine. Um, it's difficult at times when you've got a game plan and you go into an inter-services competition, and it's played at 100 miles an hour from the kickoff. It is so frantic. And I get that every game of football tends to be that way for the first five or 10 minutes. It tends to be like that for about 60, 70 minutes in an services game because of the level of fitness that we have. And it can be quite difficult to try and control the players and get them to play the way you want them to play. Um, the whole year that we prep, we, we our season's about seven months. Um Every game is preparation for the inter-services games, every single one. We enter a competition called the Southern Counties, which is um, against representative county FAs, so like London FA, Middlesex FA, they're rep sites. Um, and I think everything we do, all our fixtures that we, we have, we, I call them competitive friendlies because we don't have a friendlies to just go through the motions like pre-season. We are playing step three and step four sides and academy sides in the middle of their season. So they're still competitive games. Um, we try to uh, pick teams that play in a similar way to how the RAF and the Navy play to allow us to adapt our systems and to see how we can create opportunities to break them down, etc. Normal football routine stuff. But the whole seven-month process is geared around the inter-services. We have a fixture a month from September up till March, and then we have a four-week camp, which is the inter-services program, uh, the whole program from start to finish. Um, good thing from a player's perspective and a coach's perspective is you tend to play at either football league or ex-football league grounds. The RAF always play at Shrewsbury Town, uh, the Navy always play at Yeovil Town, and the uh, Army always use Oldershop Town. Um, so you can imagine as a player playing on great surfaces nowadays in a ground with four side stands lots of people are watching as well so it's quite an incentive for the players to want to be part of it all our games are now streamed live as well um, via BFBS uh, forces broadcasting service so that again it's all about exposure it's all about the players wanting to be part of that but it's also then the competitive edge of 
you must win the inter-services. It's, and it, it does go in peaks and troughs, though, Keith, I'm honest, because the, the RAF won it for five, six years on the trot. Um, we've won it for four years on the trot, and then the last two years have been called because of COVID. Um, and it does because of, I suppose, that's the players that join and leave um, services. Um, so you do get an influx at one time that suddenly you become quite strong in certain years and then you as they leave the army or they get a little bit older or the RF or the neighbor you tend to have a little dip and that's when they overtake so but refreshing the squad is as a head coach you get a three-year tenure um so getting your squad together for that three years setting your objectives year one two and three um but revamping that squad is not done at the end of each season it's done every week because you don't know whether somebody's gone through the process of joining the army and where are, where they are in the system and that. So it's, um, it, it is a challenge as a head coach to find these players. But I suppose that's no different in civilian football. With If you're struggling at left fullback, you've got to go and find one. Um, but no, um, all in all, the inter-services can be quite a competitive competition, as you would imagine. So, Sean, a little bit following on from the, the last question in regard to getting the squad together, et cetera, and having obviously the inter-service, inter-services. When you're preparing for games, how long do you typically actually have your squad of players together for? Um, I, as I briefly said then, what we tend to do is we have a fixture from September every month leading into, into March, because the inter-services tends to be March, April, depending, it's geared around the availability of the football league grounds. Um, but it's it's normally a four-week period between March and April. Um, when I What tends to happen is the players will arrive on a Monday, we'll train one, two sessions on a Monday, two sessions on a Tuesday, prepare Wednesday, and the game will either be Wednesday afternoon if we're playing an academy um, team or a Wednesday evening if we're playing a civilian team. Um, challenges in that, David, you would, there's obviously challenges that we spoke about players' availability on the rest of it. One of the biggest challenges that, really I wasn't aware of until I started the job was player load. A lot of the players, and it's encouraged for them to play civilian football. I've learned hell of a lot in a um, technical area on a Saturday afternoon, as well as I have in army football. And players will also learn hell of a lot on a football field on a um, Saturday and a Tuesday night, as well as what they do in service football. So we tend to have some players that will play a Saturday. um, They'll represent their unit. On a Wednesday, they'll play for their cause on a Friday. Civilian football again on a Saturday. They turn up to the army fixture on a Monday and I've got planned session of two hours out of possession in the morning, two hours in possession in the afternoon. And you can imagine the intensity of those kind of sessions with players that are as fit as they are, are really struggling with load. Um, and it, it's that challenge that you've got to balance between getting the best out of the players and getting your message across in the short amount of time that we have with them. And also understanding that the players, what you do by Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday night, they're on their feet and they're dead on their feet. And it's important to understand that side of it. We spent a lot more time now on um, analysis and also, I suppose, tactic board coaching is what I'd like to term, if, if you know what I mean. So instead of actually on the grass and we're constantly moving, a lot of it, is focused on giving examples and showing different scenarios and discussing it with the players before we go out to lessen the actual time that they're running so we can balance out the needs of the team as well as balancing out the needs of the individual and managing his load. Um, but 
it tends to, it, it, it works and it allows us to focus on a certain aspect, taper it down on the Tuesday, ready to go on the Wednesday. Um, and we've got a multitude of facilities. Um, we've got a full sports complex in Aldershot, which includes swimming pool. We've got all these facilities, rehabilitation suites and all uh, are available to us if we need them. Um, I've got, like I said earlier, I've Gaz uh, Lewis, who does my head of med, he's constantly on about mobility, we're foam rolling, all that stuff that the pro teams do is that we have that flexibility to do. And if, if they come in and we've got two men that have been involved in intense games at the weekend, that is what we have to focus on is they're getting their mobility back, getting them ready and prepared, ready to, if we have to miss Monday morning session to do a little bit Monday and then focus more on Tuesday, that's what we have to do. Um, I've learned, I think the army are quite versed in crisis management. And that's not that we panic, but I think we're just quite good at crisis management and re being reactive to stuff um, that sort of complements our proactiveness when we either deploy in operations or prepare for various tasking. I think that side of it helps you when you go into the football environment and the fact that you can react quickly to certain situations. During a game, for example, if you're if you're on the technically on the side, if you get a man sent off, if you go one one nil down, whatever the situation arises, you have that ability because of your background to be able to react and manage and give positive outcomes and give positive messages to players because you're used to that, and so are the players. No matter on the level that you're um, in rank structure in the army, it it can. Getting the message across doesn't phase the players because they understand it. And even in the small amount of time that you get to work with them, they understand it because they're used to having um, that ability to just react as, as the, um, not so much the orders, but the, the, the instructions come in, if you know what I mean. In the time you spend with your squad, Sean, are you able to implement a coaching philosophy or your coaching philosophy? This could be controversial to probably a lot of the A-licensed co coaches that may listen to this, but I'm not a big fan of a coaching philosophy. I'm, I'm not a... And I'll explain why. If you're coaching at the top level, uh, let's take Manchester City, an example, they have a philosophy of how Manchester City wants to play football. And if they... The way they do that, then, is they will go and buy a player to fit into their philosophy. And you take... The goalkeeper is a prime example. He wants to play either playing out from the back or have a goalkeeper with the ability to break lines. So he goes out and buys the best available goalkeeper because he fits into that philosophy and that's how they move on. Unfortunately, when it comes to non-league and service football, you are pretty much tied to what you've got. I mean, I could have a philosophy that I like to play 3-5-2, play out from the back, through the thirds, and then into wide areas to then go in behind it. Whatever philosophy I come up with, but if you then suddenly have only got one comfortable centre half and four right backs, how do you then adapt to that? And you can't fixate onto a philosophy. So it's having that. I know how I want to play and I'd like to play. And I think it's being able to take those elements and then mix that with the players you've got to form, I suppose, a type of philosophy, but not certainly my tied in philosophy. If you can understand what I mean by that, it's, it, I mean, the biggest constraint that we have is the availability of players on that and the time I've got to work with. If you're working with players day in, day out and being able to implement how you want to play and develop them as individuals, 
And like I explained to David earlier, you, you've got I've got players that are playing for three other teams in the week before they come to me. Um, and when you have that as a player and you see they come in and then all of a sudden you're trying to change everything they do and put them into a different position with a different philosophy with 15 different set piece routines in a day and a half, it's impossible. It's impossible to get the message across, but it's impossible for the player to understand it. And then when you suddenly put a ball into a box on a defending corner and no one's marking the nine at the back post and he ends it in, who's doing him? And you get messages. I generally get messages. Well, I, do, I normally do the eight on a Saturday and I was a bit confused when I do the nine on the Tuesday. I didn't really get it. And it's, it's, it's understanding that from a player's perspective and, and listening to what they've got to say. Because the players are key to this. I can have the best philosophy in the world, but the key, players are key. They've got to fit into that mould and they've also got to listen and adapt to it. It's, it's very evident, Sean, from listening to you speak, that your ability to be flexible as time has gone on, your ability to adjust and adapt based on who you've got and what you've got, again, has just grown over time. But in the early years of your army life, it must have been very authoritarian in what went on. And when someone in the army of authority says, jump, I'm guessing when you knew, you probably responded with how high. How has your coaching and your leadership style evolved as well as those things that I've already mentioned to you? Uh, you're dead right, David. It's um, When I joined the army in 1990, it was, yeah, it was a very autocratic way of leading. Um, you depending on where you were in the structure, uh, it was very much of, you were told what to do, told what to do, where to be, how to do it. You were never given that opinion, uh, given the option to have an opinion. Um, and I think over time that has changed. And I think when I first started coaching, and then Keith may remember these days, um, a lot of coaching was stop, stand still. Why did you do this? You should have done that. Slightly similar to the army in the fact that stop, what are you doing? It started to evolve pretty much at the same time. Um, and I know we now get um, coaching where it's more of a individual drive-by, as they call it, where you try and focus on an individual and then you collectively, with analysis, try and give players an opportunity. And because you've got to get players to understand the picture. And if you, they play the ball a certain position or a certain way, why have they done it? What did they not see? And it's getting them to know that and understand it. Now, it's exactly the same as soldiers. If a soldier does something wrong, screaming and shouting at him not necessarily makes him understand it and make it better. I've got an example for you, David, if I can. When I was a, I was a sergeant major, so um, in charge 150 people, I was at a training establishment as well. So this is where the younger soldiers um, first joined the army. Um, as a SART major, one of your key roles is, shall we say, the um, implementation of the values and standards and maintaining discipline in, all, in the organisation. One day I was walking around the camp. Um, I was with another SART major. We walked around with sticks as well. I mean, I don't even know what the sticks for, but I used to walk around with it. Um, and we come across a soldier that was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing. OK, without going into too much detail. So I decided, obviously, in my responsibility as a SART major, I needed to um, 
point out the error of his ways. I think that's a polite way of putting it. So he stood in front of me and I'm getting quite irate. I might have raised my voice a little bit, might have used a little bit of choice language. Um, I'm going quite red in the face. I'm getting extremely high blood pressure. And this lad is just staring at me. Now, this lad would have been 17, 18 years of age. I looked at him and all I could see was a blank expression coming out of him. So I stopped shouting and I said to him, do not lie to me. I want to know exactly what you're thinking right now. Tell me right now. This lad, 17, 18, he looked at me and said, oh, I'm just singing a song in my head, so I ain't got to listen to you shouting at me. Honestly, David, I had no idea what to say. The other sergeant major with me has walked off because he couldn't keep a straight face. I had no idea what to say. I'm getting all irate, I'm getting high blood pressure, and he's singing Justin Bieber in his head to me, so he ain't got to listen to me. I, I've never, ever experienced anything like it. But I think what I learned from that very, very quickly is he's made a mistake doing something wrong. Me screaming and shouting at him, he ain't listening to me. Is that going to make him not do that again? Probably not. So we now go through a process, certainly in the army, of coaching and mentoring to try and get soldiers to understand what they're doing and how they can do it better for everybody's benefit. And that's exactly the same as football players. How do we get this? How do we get that? And I think that example there, again, at the time, it's one of those situations that you just walk away and people are talking about it for weeks and days afterwards, all laughing at me, singing Justin Bieber as I'm walking past them and everything else. But when it came down to my experience, as you as you get a little bit older, you've, I've learned so much from that. I, never, I don't know who the soldier is. I've never met him since. But I learned so much from that one soldier on how to manage, coach and lead people, whether they be soldiers or football players. It's unbelievable, honestly. Is it possible, though, to gain respect from your players without using rank? And if so, what strategies have you deployed to achieve that aim? Um, yeah, rank's quite an interesting discussion, Keith. Um, first thing that people have to understand is rank is a privilege. Rank is not given, rank is earned, and it is a privilege. Because the first rank you get as a, because everyone starts as a private soldier, the first rank you get as a lance corporal, you are then responsible for something or someone. And that is where you have to take total responsibility for your actions then. Because you have to have an effect on something or someone. Um, it's certainly changed from the 90s to what it is now. It was a lot of, I'm not saying abuse of power, but there was a lot of um, the wrong way, in my opinion, of how to use rank to get to people, certainly in the working environment. Um, a lot of people had rank and used that rank to put fear into people. And I think those days have now completely gone and how we manage a leader we've just discussed has completely changed. But the rank structure is in place to ensure that we, it's no different to a civilian organisation, uh, no different to a football league academy that has an academy manager, uh, a head development phase coach and all the rest of it. You have a structure so that people can understand where decisions uh, are made and the, obviously the respect from that. Um, when you transfer the rank structure from the military into the football environment, there's no rank in football is a, is a phrase that is used on a regular basis. There's no rank in sport when it comes to um, army sport or service sport. But that rank exists. That rank is there. Now, I've never had an experience where somebody in the sporting arena has had to use their rank to deal with a person or a situation ever. Um, 
people know what rank you are because that's common knowledge to most people. Everyone knows who what rank people are, but people don't feel the need to use that rank. You gain the respect from your players because of your knowledge, your experience, and then the more important is how you affect them as individuals and as a team. Um, if you walk in that, uh, there's a, there's a, a, a well-known saying about you, you only get one chance to make a good, good first impression. And the minute you go in, when I took over, the minute I went in, we had planned it for weeks and weeks of how we was going to approach it, the, the, the presentation I was going to give on day one to all the players. I wanted them to know that I knew what I was talking about. When it comes to football terminology, yeah, I wanted them to know what I was talking about. And I wanted them to have confidence that I could affect them some of them, I probably affected 2 or 3%. Some of them, 80%. Um, but I wanted them all to understand that I could affect them, along with the other coaches, a little bit or a lot. But I think, and then collectively, we could structure a side that could go and win into, into services. Um, and I think that the first presentation, they listened. And I, again, clever, I could have given a presentation for two hours, but it was literally 10, 15 minutes because I didn't want them walking out thinking, oh, could have done that in five minutes. Hey, mate, I wanted them to be hit. There's the points. There's my key points. Right, let's go and let's go on the dance floor. Let's show you how I can coach. And the first sessions, I took the first sessions. The, the other coaches just, and I deliberately took them so they knew I knew what I was talking about. And, and I, I suppose I deliberately focused on senior players to start with as well. Um, the skipper, Farkins, as an example, I went, I rang in prior to it. Um, we've got two players playing in the Conference South at the moment. Um, which obviously two two promotions from the Football League. Um, and I deliberately spoke to them quite quickly because these are quite effective players on and off the field. Um, so again, it's, it's getting to understand. But I also then threw in a little bit of humour. We had a little bit of fun to start with so, so that people can, it's not just about all oh, got to be, you've got to have that little bit of fun. If you just coach everybody, not in an autocratic way, but if everything is so serious, it dilutes the message, I think, sometimes. And I think you've got to balance that out with a little bit of fun, bring in a little bit of technical stuff, then go back out and then come back in. And that's how we did balance it out from there. I love the the mixture of, of everything you've put together where you're using and utilising maybe more powerful people in the group to get them on side. Because as we know... You get them on early, it can help bring in the rest of the group. But having that ability and awareness to know that it's not just about you as the coach, it's about this collective group and that people also generally play the sport because they enjoy it. And, and to bring in that humour and the enjoyment shows a great sense of awareness from your side on how to develop people and how to develop a group and like we've spoke about and you've covered it that's something that that develops over time from your experience and then from reflecting on the experiences you've had now it, it leads to my next question the battlefields of a 21st century soldier are very different from that of the past era so soldiers nowadays they'll, they'll be more tech savvy They'll be operating more complex systems. And you'll probably have lads within, within your group that you coach that are probably more diverse in their thinking and they may ask more questions 
and Maya offer more of an, an opinion. For you, over this period of, of th- over 30 years, how have you found the transition from being able to tell them what to do to now embracing thoughts and opinions with the people that you work with? Um, I think football coaching has helped me more than it has others that have just been military. I think because I've coached such, especially with civilian football, but the, the contrast from when you go from military football to civilian football and being able to manage a group of players, as an example, that have been on a building site all day on a Tuesday, it's been red hot, they've been off scaffolding, then they come to a, a training session at night and they try. you're trying to get the maximum out of them. Um, I think you learn valuable lessons in how to manage and adapt to people. Soldiers nowadays, because our, our recruiting is quite positive, I suppose the, the government will say it's not as brilliant as it should be, but it's extremely positive now. Um, we have started to become a little bit more selective in who actually comes through the door. Um, I'm probably putting myself down a little bit here, David, by saying that when I came through the door, it's because it was a revolving one and you could just come in and everybody could come in and there was no, no one closing it behind you. Um, what we've now have the ability to do is to get more well-educated people that come in. The knock-on effect is you get people that will say why. And you say, well, I want you to do this, why? And you, what that does, though, as a leader or a fo- as a football coach, is it challenges you to do that with people and to ensure that you have those answers for them. You've got to do all your work. And if you say to a soldier, what I want you to do is I want you to pick your stuff and I want you to go to there, why? What am I going to do when I get there? You have to have those answers or your credibility goes out the window. Same as a football coach. If you say to, say, a centre midfield player, I want you to make this run. Why? You've got to understand because it affects other people and it affects how we move forward. And it's having that knowledge and it challenges you as a coach. And honestly, it's made my coaching a hell of a lot better by having those answers prepared. There's nothing worse, and, and you'll know yourself, David, as coaching players, if they ask you why and you haven't got an answer. Nothing worse. And, and I think it's getting that ability to be able to do that. Um, I think as well is that when you've got better educated, whether they be football players or soldiers, they will learn off each other. And I, they will challenge each other, not in a confrontational way, but they'll be able to say, hey, do this, and this will stop this, do this. And they will help each other more than they used to. I mean, honestly, I get young lads that are 18 that will quite comfortably tell the army skipper who's 30 odd years of age, who was a pro for a couple of years, and they will tell him if he's not doing something right or his body shape's not right for when a cross comes in the box, anything like that. They will quite happily tell him. Um, and I just think overall, um, the opinions and the questions you get from whether they be soldiers or football players or com- combination of the two, they are so valuable to a coach or a leader. And if you, if you listen and you implement, you don't implement everything, but if you listen and you implement things, um, that every single level, whether that be an 18-year-old or a 35-year-old, they give you, it, it will only make you better as a leader or a coach of people. Um, many years ago, sorry to uh, labour this point, David, but many years ago, I, when I was a young soldier, you would sit and um, discuss military and you would have an opinion, but because of, your stature in rank and your age, people would ignore your opinion. And then you would take the opinion or the idea of the senior officer that was making the decisions. It not necessarily be the best way of doing things. And 
we, I could tell you a hundred horror stories about, well, we're, we're taking this route in the middle of the Brecon Beacons in Wales and you end up doing four hills instead of two hills, which can be physically challenging for a soldier. Um, I learned from that to act accept an opinion or an idea from anybody no matter how old or what rank they are if they've got an idea they've got input let's hear it and i think you learn from that from the, what you've learned as a young as i did as a young lad that you then take forward into um, how i manage and lead soldiers and football players now i know you mentioned someone earlier sean that I used to coach as a young boy or a young young man now, actually, in Matty Glass. And when I reached out to Matt, I'd actually asked him, did he know anyone within the army or any anyone within the forces that would add value to our podcast? And I can now see why Matty highly recommended you. Now, you officially retire later this year after spending your 30-odd years, 31 years of service to the country. But when you reflect on your time in the military, what has been the skill sets military life has taught you over that period? Well, firstly, I'll thank Matt Glass for that. Thank you. That's quite nice of him. <laughs> um, I think three things is where I would focus, because it could be an endless list, but I think three areas is what I'd focus. I think, firstly, professionalism. Um, I will be professional as physically possible in everything I do. And that means I will prepare properly to make sure that I'm professional in what I deliver and how I do it. Um, I'm really sensitive about perception. I want people to perceive me as someone who is, is professional. And if I'm the head coach of the Army football team, I want them to be perceived as professional. Um, what goes on in our changing rooms or the football environment is our business. But, for example, when I first when they leave that environment and they go to Tesco's, say, at lunchtime or the end of the day to get a sandwich and they've got an army tracksuit on, they've not got flip-flops on, they've not got caps on, the trousers aren't halfway down their back, that they are professional. The fact that they are, not, if they're in a military uniform, they would look smart. The fact they've got a tracksuit on doesn't change their standards. They're professional to the end. And I don't want people walk. If, if you, Keith, walked into Tesco's and saw the army football team get off a bus and walk in, you would have an opinion of what they should look like. If they don't look like that, someone would make an opinion. And it used to, re that, that is one of my real things. And the boys brought into that straight away, instantly brought into it. I don't want people thinking, what is this shower over here? Let's, this is not, we are a public paid organisation we're by taxpayers and we're representing the country and the government and we should make sure that our professional standards are at the right level. Um, that goes into standards. Um, I'm very much a, I set my standards and I don't lower my standards for anybody. My standards are my, I'm not saying everybody will reach the same standard as me, but I'm not adjusting my standard for anybody. I will set my stall out quite comfortably and I, I will have no qualms getting into discussions with anybody about it. I've learnt those standards from good and bad people over time. Um, and I think if you if you live and stand by those standards, and they're, they're enforced by standards, by the Army's values and standards, um, the, the, all the soldiers, it's every company, every football club has now got a set of values or a set of standards that they abide their employees by. Um, we're no different. And I think once you've had those ingrained in you for 31 years, they make your standards extremely high. 
but you have to understand as a leader and as a coach, not everybody's going to meet them. All you try and do is mould them a little bit to try and get people to understand it, especially I was never at the same standard as I am now, never when I first started, and I don't expect a young 18-year-old soldier to be at that standard, but I expect him to be on the road with me to try and do that. And that leads me into the final thing, I think, is best in people. People are our most prized possession. They're our most expensive commodity, I must say, in the army. They are our most expensive thing, and, but they are our most prized possession. And I think you have to invest in the people. Uh, getting to know them, getting to understand them, listening to uh, massively into listening to them. Listen to what they've got to say to you and try and draw stuff out by just offering a little question without steering them down little paths. Let them steer themselves down paths. And I think investing in your people, whether they be soldiers, whether they be football players, will have a massive effect on how successful the team, or whether that be a military team or a football team, how effective it can be. And I think that pretty much sums up my 31 years, Keith. Sean, I've got to tell you, this has been, it's been brilliant. Uh, first off, I want to thank you for the 31 years of service that you've done but I also want to thank you for coming on the podcast and I've taken lots from it in terms of the, the last bit that you mentioned investing in people I think whatever walk of life you're in that holds true if you invest in the people that you're in and around that are in your environment you'll get more out of them but there was a few things that that I took from it you talked about learning from good and bad in the last answer, the story of the young boy singing, or young man singing Justin Bieber while you're screaming at him. And on everything really that you did, you talked about how you learned from it and you reflected on it. And there's a quote that, that I really like. I actually mentioned it a little bit earlier on. You don't learn from experience. You learn from reflecting on experience. And... For me, what you've spoke about a lot today epitomizes that quote where you've had experiences, but you've gone away and you've gone, hang on a minute, maybe I could do this better. Maybe I can change that. And I think the people that have been in your proximity, the people that have been in your environment will have been very fortunate to have been so because it's evident that you care about those that you work with, but that you're also willing to listen and to learn from them as well. Um, so... Again, I want to thank you. This has been, it's been tremendous. And I know you're retiring later this year from the services and in whatever you decide to do next in your life, good luck with it. I'm sure you'll impact just as many lives as, uh, as you already have. I'm, I'm sure you'll keep impacting and, and that'll continue throughout your life. 